Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Machine learning is used for everything from economic decision-making to lending decisions to employee selection, and it's only becoming more prevalent in the digital age. AI and algorithmic models are increasingly surfacing as the subject of intense policy debates surrounding the legality of and liability for these advanced machine learning applications. According to new McKinsey Global Institute report, by the year 2030, about 800 million people will lose their jobs to AI-driven robots. In 2016, Microsoft's AI chatbot Tay had to be shut down in less than a day due to the information it was receiving and learning from other Twitter users. Twitter users, the robot learned to spew racist slurs and Nazi propaganda. Alfred Kauger joins me today. He's someone I've known for many years now. He's an attorney, an activist, and an author of The Threats of Algorithms and AI to Civil Rights, Legal Remedies, and American Jurisprudence, One Nation Under Algorithms. Al, welcome to the show. Why did you write this book? Well, I've always had an interest in the juxtaposition between high tech and computer science and the law. Back in the days when I was in law school and lawyers didn't use computers, nonetheless, I was a co-founder of the computer law firm at school. Over the years, I've watched as uh, technology has evolved and improved. Um, more recently, I got involved with uh, discussions on the legal ramifications and ethics involving algorithm and AI-driven products uh, when those products harm people. That resulted in a law review article I wrote but then that got me to thinking about how are algorithms and AI going to affect uh, American jurisprudence on a whole variety of issues, including uh, fiduciary duty, professional responsibility, professional liability, those sorts of legal questions. Well, maybe let's start with some of those damages. What are some of the ways that algorithms are hurting people? Well, first of all, let me say that algorithms are great technology. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not saying let's never ever go use algorithms, uh, but algorithms can and will hurt people. Uh, part of it is because uh, algorithms are dependent on how good the designer is, and an algorithm designer either is going to have to also be an expert in all the fields that person is designing in or have the expertise available. And if the manufacturers of those algorithms start cutting corners, you end up with the same product problems that other manufacturers have when they start cutting corners. So algorithms will never be a perfectly accurate. So what happens when they're only 66% accurate and they cause harm to 33% of the population? Algorithms also machine learn. They teach themselves how to be better, to make better decisions, to, to make better correlations, to do things more efficiently with data. The problem there is, in the effort to be more efficient, algorithms pick up on historical instances of discrimination in the databases they're using. So the quickest way to make a decision is to make it based upon prejudice and bigotry. And those, those algorithms will pick up on those historic instances. So algorithms tend to discriminate. So 
people can be harmed by an algorithmic process. And then to add the layer, one more layer, algorithms work in what Professor Pasquale, uh, Frank Pasquale has called a black box. You never know what data the algorithm will use. You never know how they make those correlations. So if somebody's harmed by an algorithm, they don't even know why they were harmed or what they can protest about. What's an example of um, somebody that's been harmed and that, that has then tried to test the legal system with it? Uh, I will give you two cases that actually were recently reported by NBC. One was a uh, Navy uh, officer with high security clearance that tried to get a mortgage, and he was denied uh, the mortgage because his name, which happened to be a Hispanic last name, was similar to a low-level Mexican drug dealer that that algorithm happened to find somehow and made the conclusion that the two were one and the same people. Not only was that person denied a mortgage based upon their Hispanic last name, but they are now concerned that that mortgage denial will leak into their security clearance and they could lose their job with the Navy. Another example, um, an individual applied for, and this case may actually be going to the Supreme Court, the individual applied for a car loan. The, um, under the Patriot Act, the bank was required to make sure that that person was not on the terrorist watch list. And lo and behold, that person's name or something similar showed up on the watch list. Uh, and so they were denied a car loan. But now they've been red flagged to be denied any business transaction with most companies in America. We have heard the stories in the past about everybody from senators to toddlers being on that no-fly list. It was thrown together quickly after 9-11. It's never been vetted well or fixed up. And yet this is a database that is being used by financial institutions to make credit decisions. Well, and as you say, you can't sue the algorithm, right? So uh, who, who gets sued in these cases? Well, th that's a very interesting question because for people who are using these algorithms, you have two concerns. On one hand, as the industries, say the fintech industry, uses more and more algorithms, you will be held to an industry standard that says you must use these algorithms. If you do it the old-fashioned way, you're in trouble. But the flip side is you're relying upon a technology that because of this black box tendency, the non-transparency of algorithmic processes, you never know how it is working and how it reached the conclusion that is telling you to use. So you as the expert or you as the financial advisor or you as the officer of your company that owes an obligation to your shareholders, how can you say that you're making the right decision based upon an algorithm that you don't even understand how it reached that process. So it's a double-edged sword. You're supposed to be using this technology, but you're using a technology that you can't understand, yet you're supposed to be able to explain why you made your decision. Mm. Well, and, and this kind of, as, as you've written about, runs afoul of the fiduciary duty, right? Right, because those who are providing legal or excuse me, financial advice or managing money or other property for third parties, such as financial advisors and stockbrokers and that sort of thing, but also those who are officers and senior managers of their company that are in essence running the company for their shareholders and therefore have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. In both instances, if you're going to use an algorithm that makes financial decisions or business decisions, let's say you 
bought an algorithm that claims to uh, look at your future of your company and know what new product lines to go into or what strategic plans to adopt. If you don't know how that algorithm is working and you don't know what data base that algorithm used, you could be drawing conclusions that if you're sued by a shareholder, for example, who says, well, Mr. Director, how did you come up with that decision? Mr. CEO, why did you take the company down that road? You're going to say, well, I based upon this algorithm and they say, and why? And you're going to be say, because I was told this was a good algorithm. That's your best answer. Well, that's not fulfilling your fiduciary duty to use your own expertise, your own judgment to come up with these financial decisions. Mm. So beyond just tort law and fiduciary duty, I mean, you, you have broader concerns too. I mean, you, you actually say that you're worried about how AI is eroding privacy and you think that has implications on our Fourth Amendment rights in the U.S.? Yes, because there's a longstanding uh, Supreme Court ruling that when you, one's personal records, personal information is held by third parties, uh, you don't have the same expectation of privacy, the same right to complain that the government, let's say, subpoenas that third party. That's why for years the government has gone to tax dodgers accountants to get the information rather than going asking for the information directly from the tax dodger. Well, if all of our information now is stored in the cloud, for example, does that mean we have any expectation of privacy for any information going right down to the most fundamental aspects of the, the medical treatments we receive, the financial decisions we make? Um, so there's that simple but fundamental question of, um, in the age of high tech and where algorithms are making these decisions and have access to all this data, what right of privacy should we have? And then you go one step further, in order to use these algorithms and, to, and the products that use the algorithms and artificial intelligence, we end up giving away so much of our private information that we as individuals, consumers or citizens, or even businesses, end up giving away far more information than we may otherwise think we want to because we think, oh, we if I tell Alexa what my grocery list is and they place the order with the grocery store, how convenient is that? Well, we forget that now Alexa, Alexa's owners, the grocery store, and anybody that contracted to buy that information from both of these parties can now get all that information about how do we spend our money? What do we buy? What are, you know, what consumer choices are we making that we may not want other parties to know about? I will give you a perfect example. When people have had to sign up for the COVID vaccination at chain drug stores or grocery stores, they're being required to sign up via the customer loyalty programs. The, the, these chains say, well, that's because then you'll be on our emailing list and it's easier to tell you when the vaccination is available. But I've looked at some of these uh, terms of use and they actually say, once you sign up, all the information you're providing to us, we will provide to third parties. Well, you're signing up with your name, your age, your gender, your address, uh, because that's what qualifies you to get these various stages of COVID vaccinations. But do you want that information to be just sold to whomever uh, so that they have 
all this information about your background and it's being sold to people you don't even know it's being sold to. And you had to do that to get a, a vaccination. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask is that um, I was going to joke, well, it's okay, Al, because they've signed the end user license agreement. <laughs> Therefore, they've given all permission. But let's be honest, most of us don't know what we've signed. We, we see a, you know, four or five screens full of data and we skim through it and click agree because we want to do whatever we want the app to do for us. Right. And let's face it, there are lawyers who are very skilled at making convoluted and user agreements, so we don't even know what our rights or or what we've given up in terms of rights might be. Well, so so what advice do you have for people? I mean, I, I think of this at three levels. One is just the consumer. The, some of the examples you gave there, I, I think about you know myself and uh, you know others that I know just as a consumer. Uh, secondly, is uh, technology driven. You know, fintech and other tech companies that are. Um, kind of building and using these algorithms. And then third is the traditional financial institutions, which are increasingly relying on these things. Let's, let's take those one at a time. Let, let, let's just start with the consumers. I mean, what, what kind of advice do you give consumers about protecting their privacy in the age of algorithms? Well, it's very hard for a consumer to protect themselves right now. Europe, for example, has far broader and stronger protections of privacy and what goes into databases and how they can use that information than the US. And the right to be uh, forgotten. Exactly, yes. So that if somebody has made a mistake or you have data that could hurt you forever, you have a right for various grounds to have that data removed to the extent possible. In the US, we don't have that right. So that means that we have to be doubly careful about what information we give out um, for example, people don't realize that every time you're on a uh, social media site and there's those silly quizzes about what sort of uh, former monarch would you have been answer these 20 questions. Well, that's collecting all sorts of information about you that goes into databases for marketing. And algorithms are really, really good at taking all those disparate surveys and add that to the disparate people who respond to those surveys and talk to each other to create massive information about every individual for marketing purposes, for demographic purposes. Um, I mean, in, in the UK, the Brexit election, it turned out was swayed by people who created a fake uh, lottery for the English football soccer tournaments. Um, and when people answered those questions to enter that lottery, the, all this demographic information became available to the campaigners against Brexit. And that was used to aim very targeted cam, uh, campaign uh, ads to these people. And that swayed the election. Uh, so, probably the Arsenal supporters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, never Manchester United, ever. No, so... Um, uh, so anyway, the problem is, so the, the issue with consumers is be very careful about even the most innocuous release of information. And that even includes bringing in Alexa and all these other uh, uh, products that track your, your needs, your wants, your desires within your own home. Because all that can eventually create a database about you about your connections to other people, about your consumer choices, um, about your very 
fundamental decisions on medicine and everything else that that you may not want to be used against you or about you, and you have no control over that, at least in the U.S. So we should be lobbying our elected officials to to pass laws that are more like in the EU um, or California, for example. There was a law recently passed there. Right. Um, but we should also be much more diligent about giving this all this information about ourselves away for free to these giant big data users. Well, how about on the flip side? What if you're a tech company or a fintech company and you're wanting to gather all this information because you're 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 trying to create better products and better experiences for customers and the more data you have the better. What what's the best way to manage these responsibly? Well, I think you have to at all times just like a buyer of any other product keep in mind the limitations of that product despite the advertising, the marketing, the, the way it's being sold to you. So there are limitations to how good an algorithm or AI product can be designed. And you have to make sure that you are getting a product designed for your needs, not one that's off the shelf, so to speak, and is just being shoehorned into what you want. Uh, because especially with algorithms where how they make correlations to the databases available to them is fundamental to how successful they are or how accurate they are. If you buy a, an algorithm that doesn't draw the correlations you want based upon the data you have available, you can come up with some very bad decisions. Um, also, anybody that's using an algorithm, whether you're a doctor or a fintech person or just an executive of a company, needs to remember that Algorithms should not replace humans. They should complement humans. Humans have skills that algorithms never will, including just being able to say, that doesn't make any sense. So we as humans should not look at algorithms as divine oracles that we just defer all decision-making to. We have to continue to make sure humans play a fundamental and probably the ultimate final decision in that decision-making process. Um, so, uh, and then last but not least, we have to make sure that we are buying products that are transparent enough or can be adjudged by, for example, other algorithms to make sure that those algorithms, those products are being constantly tested to make sure that they have not machined themselves into a discriminatory process, uh, or a gender-based process, um, and that's whether you're trying to make credit decisions as a fintech person, or you're just trying to run a company and hire somebody uh, from a diverse uh, employee base. Well, and you, you've talked about if you're a traditional financial service company, a bank or credit union, so on, you, you have even a higher level of care, not only because of the fiduciary duty, um, but because of the regulatory burden on this. Talk, talk about how uh, banks and credit unions should think about all of this? Well, it's it's somewhat, well, irony may be the wrong word, but it's, it's interesting that because the fintech industry is more highly regulated, banking and, and financial advice and, and stock brokers are more regulated than, let's say, a general manufacturer of a product, consumer product. That means that there are 
laws and regulations in writing that can, that can be used to challenge or to find fault in algorithms and AI processes. Uh, so the industries that are more regulated will be more likely to face challenges based upon these regulations when they adopt AI and algorithms that seem to violate these regulations. An algorithm that makes a credit decision and um, makes one that ultimately is based upon one's gender, race, religion, national origin, neighborhood for redlining purposes, for example. Um, whereas one of the deficiencies with American jurisprudence that is getting worse by the day is if you're relying upon liability based upon what's called the common law, just the history of how courts have ruled and come up with cases that set standards of behavior and that sort of thing. Um, that's all based upon human interaction, human liability, human responsibility for things that go wrong. Though the common law is not keeping up on what happens when humans are being replaced by algorithms in the decision-making process, even to the extent of um, driving your car as opposed to the human driving the car. So those areas of liability are going to lag because the courts are not coming up with new common law to deal with algorithms and AI. So the, the areas of industry that will be most impacted by liability and regulatory issues will be those that are most highly regulated by written laws and statutes right now. Well, and bankers are used to the concept of disparate impact, right? Even if we can't prove that the, you, you know, why you did this wrong, the, we can look to, uh, you know, parts of your customer base are impacted disproportionately and therefore you have to make corrective action. Correct. And it is a dangerous thing for any fintech person or financial person to say, my algorithm's using statistics to come up with the right answers so I don't have to worry about the, the, the result of those statistics. Um, you can try to say, I used an algorithm to make credit decisions to avoid uh, discrimination. But if, once again, disparate impact can make those algorithm decisions just as bad, even if, if you claim you thought you were doing better. Uh, so yes, that is a concern to worry about. Um, well, there's lots to worry about. And, and uh, <laughs> you, you've given me a whole list of new things. Where are the bright spots? What are you most optimistic about as you think about AI and algorithms and machine learning going forward? Well, I think Specifically, anybody that needs to make a decision based upon data and correlations to be driven from that, uh, obtained from that data, um, these are tools that will allow people to do their jobs far more efficiently and and correctly than ever before. Mm. Um, you know, all these problems I'm talking about uh, with inherent discriminatory features and non-transparency. Um, we can develop the means to get by these issues and these deficiencies if we just, once again, don't look at algorithms as just a divine oracle that should not be questioned, but we should look at it as a product that can be improved. And the more we improve the product, the better it will be to help us in these decisions. Um, and going a step back even more, it's going to be fascinating to see what role professionals and business managers 
play within their business organizations or for their clients in the future when we are not doing as much mundane topics as just crunching numbers. Um, we are given the opportunity to just, it won't even be thinking outside of the box anymore because there won't be a box. So what, what can we do with that ability to, to think outside limited parameters to no longer say, well, we can only do so much because we're human. Um, right. Well, I mean, that's always been the promise of technology. You're going back to the dawn of the industrial revolution, right? But we'll have these machines take these, you know, crappy jobs away from us and we'll be able to just focus on better stuff. But a lot of what you talked about is a function of bias in, bias out. And so as I think about all of these concerns that you raise, what I think maybe I'm most optimistic about is what you just said about the ability to improve all this. Can can we intentionally use um, broader sets of data? Can we represent people that maybe weren't represented in other databases? Can we have humans with uh, a higher intent uh, kind of uh, tweak and adjust these algorithms so that the technology not only does some of the you know, crappy work for us, but it actually um, uh, appeals to our better angels. Well, I mean, a perfect example is, is uh, giving credit to consumers. It used to be that uh, credit agencies collected from a discrete number of sources. And the re rationale was the, the the person looking at the credit file to make the credit decision can't look at uh, how the person has bought products from 500 different stores or, or uh, borrowed money from both banks and their uncle. Or, or um, paid utility bills on time for 20 years or rent or right. those sorts of right. things that may not show up on a traditional credit reporting structure. Exactly. Um, if you're living in the inner city where there are not traditional department stores and grocery stores, and you're buying things from a local barista or a mom and pop shop, then those proper uses of money, because you kept up your account or whatnot, would never be shown, would never show up on traditional credit scores. Now, there is the ability of uh, credit agencies, if they design the algorithms correctly, and they expand the databases to non-traditional sources of credit information, to allow people that were outside the mainstream of using credit to have their proper credit usage through these non-traditional venues um, recognized. And that means they will then be eligible for credit they could never get before. The problem is, once again, we have to always remember that those same credit algorithms can look at databases and make the same discriminatory decisions that were made in prior decades. Um, and instead of saying, I'm not gonna discriminate against this person because they're black, we'll say, I'm not discriminating against this person because they're in this zip code. And why do people in that zip code not have good credit? Well, because they lived in uh, a zip code that did not traditionally have credit or were denied credit and yeah, the credit or, any number of structural exactly. structural yes. impediments right 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 yeah 
Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a fascinating topic, a little scary, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still hopeful that um, the technology can and will be used for uh, a lot of good. Well, Al Cowger is the author of The Threats of Algorithms and AI to Civil Rights, Legal Remedies, and American Jurisprudence, One Nation Under Algorithms. Al, where can people find the book? Uh Ironically, online through <laughs> Amazon.com, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just ask so, Alexa. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. Um, and of course, you know, you can place the order with your traditional mom and pop bookstore, like any other book you might want to buy. So it's it's available through standard uh, through standard means. <laughs> Great. We're, we're, anywhere you buy fine books today. Well, Al, thanks for joining us today and, and sharing uh, some insights on this uh, fascinating, if scary topic. Well, thank you for inviting me. The Finnovate Podcast is your home for interesting conversations and insights from Finnovate's Global Conference Series. I'm Greg Palmer. Join me as I interview leading innovators, bankers, analysts, venture capitalists, and more to get their thoughts and predictions on the future of financial technology. Find us wherever you normally listen to podcasts or at provoke.fm. Welcome to this special compilation of some of the best AI discussions we've had on Breaking Banks. We'll start with Greg Cross of Soul Machines and delve into how AI can be used for good and find out if digital humans are the answer. Then we go to AI and robots. Brett hosts Ben Gertzel, founder of Singularity, to learn about Sophia, the social humanoid robot developed by Hong Kong-based company Hanson Robotics. And finally, we discuss fintech and explore AI and consciousness with Byron Reese, author of The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. Greg Cross is calling in all the way from uh, Auckland in New Zealand, and he is the chief business officer for Soul Machines. Now, I don't know whether you saw the news on this, but Soul Machines, they're developing a smart assistant, resp emotionally responsive avatars as a user interface for AI systems. And there's this is a University of Auckland spin-off um, based on BabyX technology created by Dr. Mark Sagard down there and his engineering team. What is interesting is that this, uh, this tech that they've, uh, they've used for the voice, they've actually used a very famous actor to, uh, to uh, voice this uh, smart assistant, Nadia, virtual assistant. So, Greg, are you there? Yeah, I am, Brett. Good morning. So, uh, what time is it over there in Auckland? Uh, just after 7 o'clock on Friday morning. So, uh, you know, uh, in this part of the world, we can say, thank God it's Friday already. Absolutely. Well, um, so tell me about Nadia and who is the, the voice actress you've used? Yeah, so, so Nadia is a, a, a digital human uh, that we've created specifically for the National Disability Insurance Association in Australia. Um, and in creating Nadia and bringing her to life, we've, we've actually been privileged to use the voice of Kate Blanchett. Um, Wow. Uh, to be the uh, to be the interface for 500,000 disabled uh, people with disability in Australia. That's pretty that's pretty crazy. So how did you get Kate Blanchett involved? 
Um, the, actually, the folks from uh, NDIA approached um, Kate. Uh, one of them had uh, gone to school with uh, Kate, so it always goes back to our, our childhood days some way, somehow. And um, Kate was only too happy to get engaged in this specific project, um, um, helping people with disability. And uh, what, you know, what did you guys record it in a sound booth, or you know, and how did you go through the process of creating the, the enough vocabulary that you know you could now have uh, enough uh, to power the the uh, virtual AI? Yeah, to yeah to power Nadia. So um, so the um, uh, Mark, um, our um, inventor, and, and a couple of our sound team actually flew to the Gold Coast. In Australia, where Kate was recording, um, was was filming um, one of the uh, productions she was in, uh, and we spent uh, Mark and a couple of our guys spent two or three late evenings uh, recording uh, Kate's voice, and then we set her up with a with a laptop and a, and a microphone. And I think after Gold Coast, she moved on to London, so she took that with her and. Um, and continued recording the, the the rest of what we required at, at that point in time. So there, there was you know 30 or 40 hours of um, time required to record Kate's voice, and then a and then a few weeks of post processing time for our yep. technology guys to to turn it into uh, Nadia's voice and be able to produce all the content that we required for for this particular digital employee. Now, um, why why was the technology called Baby X? I mean, I know the answer, but for the audience, why did you call the voice yeah. voice technology Baby X? Um, yeah, um, the, the, you know, Mark and the team, uh, Mark came up with the name, you know, Baby X, you know, uh, because it was the the first generation of. Uh, of his literally his digital baby, so Baby X is actually based on the likeness of one of Mark's children. There you go. And uh, how is this tech going to be used? You said it's going to be used uh, to help uh, uh, those um, in the field of uh, disability, um, but specific the National Disability Insurance Scheme specifically. But um, you, you've got emotionally responsive uh, tech in this. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, I mean, I mean. So first off. Um, the the Nadia application or the or the Nadia um, avatar is is really just the first of uh, what will be you know literally hundreds and hundreds of digital employees that we'll put to work for different companies in different industries around the world. So it really is just the first application. So um, to um, the core of our technology is what we call our human computing engine. So. Um, behind the the the, the Nadia's pretty face um, and the, and very lifelike um, behaviour and features is is what we call our human computing engine, which is which is effectively made up of biologically inspired models of different parts of the human brain. So, I mean, the reason you know Nadia um, behaves in a very human-like way is because we're we're actually um, she actually is seeing and hearing um, using many of the same sorts of systems or, or models of many of the same sorts of systems that, that, that we have as humans. 
in in terms of the the algorithms or the uh, the software behind Sophia, um, you know, describe the progress that's happened over the last couple of years in terms of uh, her um, you know, so-called cognitive capabilities. Yeah, I mean, the cognitive capabilities are are improving all the time, and I mean, we look at the Sophia robot internally as sort of a a platform for experimenting with with a whole bunch of different AI approaches. I mean, when she's giving a speech on the stage, often a lot of that is just pre-scripted, although not all. We do some free dialogue back and forth on the stage also. And much of the public dialogue with her is using a relatively simple dialogue system, which is, you could say, the level of, of a Siri or an Alexa, except with more more personality and and some uh, physical embodiment. So, I mean, it's not like it's uh, completely clueless about what it's saying, but nor does it have a full understanding of of, of every, everything it's talking about. Like, well, I mean, when, when you ask Sophia, like, what, what do you think about Ethereum? And she says something, it's likely to be something she's heard somewhere rather than her, like, really understanding mm. how cryptocurrencies work, right? On the other mm. hand... We also use her as a platform for our OpenCog AI engine, which is based on sort of fully understanding what she sees. And there we're dealing with things like, hey, who walked in the door just now? What did they just do? Well, they well they sat down, right? Like, who who were they just talking to? So we're we're teaching her to understand what she sees and and what she hears, and to really old conversations about what happens in your everyday environment. So you and can understand the yeah. context, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So D- David David Hansen sort of calls it an infant thing that for for some things she's more like a little kid where we're just working on getting her to really connect what she sees and hears and, and how she moves her arms and head with 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 the language she's saying. And that's sort of fundamental AI research. On the other hand, for commercial purposes we just want to feed her knowledge base with knowledge so she can hold like useful or amusing conversations so i mean if she's you know if she's in like an audi car showroom we just wanted to be able to say hey this is uh this is a great car it looks like it'll be perfect for your family right even if even if she doesn't have a full understanding of like exactly how that family is going to use the car or something right And I mean, so part of the research challenge in the next few years is for these things to to come to come together. Right. So pattern recognition, not just pattern recognition, but recognizing how um, different objects or different things are associated with each other. Pretty interesting. So um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So we're looking to convert converge all these things together, right? I mean, ultimately, yeah. what has to happen is that. The AI that's based on advanced understanding and learning ultimately has to subsume the specialized AI that we're using for right. commercial and entertainment purposes. And, you know, I think we know how to do that from an R&D standpoint. Making it happen, you know, we'll take collaboration of a bunch of different AI researchers and a bunch of resources. And I think with the, with the singularity net, we're, we're getting that. So you talked about some of the roles, the different jobs that you have with Hanson Robotics. And I think that's a good point to sort of uh, diverge here and say in terms of 
the threat and the opportunity around automation. There's a lot of fear around, um, you know, job losses and unemployment that's going to be impacted by artificial intelligence generally. But let's start with the positive side. Let's talk about the jobs that you think will be created around artificial intelligence and robotics over the next uh, decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I think we're on the verge of a next AI revolution. What's happened in the last few years is sort of a narrow AI revolution. Right. Where we have many different specialized AIs doing all sorts of cool and, and amazing things, but they're each highly narrow and, and constrained, right? And, I mean, as a result of this, we're not moving in an obvious way toward what I call AGI, artificial, artificial general intelligence. Yeah. And, and we're, we're also, we're in a situation where, situation where, you know, for a customer, for a business to deploy these narrow AIs to serve their goals, in, in, it requires a lot of uh, specialized knowledge on, on the mm. users. So that's, uh, is sort of a, a bottleneck because if a business isn't a tech business, they have a hard time now finding AI specialists who can help them uh, help them use the existing narrow AI tools appropriately within their their own application software. So, yeah, what we're hoping to do and aiming to do with SingularityNet is destroy the next AI revolution, which will be an AGI revolution, where we're we're going to take all these isolated components and network them together and and get an AI system that is sort of a, a meta system with a bunch of different specialized AIs cooperating with each other and then cooperating with some AI components that have more general learning and, and reasoning ability. But it's pretty clear that the incentives to create artificial intelligence are much stronger than the incentives to say, let's uh, hold off on this and take a structured sort of measured approach to this so that it doesn't impact jobs in society, right? Um, you know, we, we seem, you know, the same happened with social media, with the internet. Uh, yeah, with, no, no one's going to stop AI development because, I mean, there's A, too much money to be made by rolling out AI in, in the interest of various businesses, and B, there's just too much near-term good to be done with, with, with AI, like right, right, right now. I mean, I, I was just meeting with the, the head of education programs for UNESCO, and I mean, she's very eager to see AI curriculum deployed in schools around the world, and you know, AI used to solve problems of, of the developing world. And I mean, I, I had another meeting with a cancer researcher. They're very eager to see AI used to sort of glue together all the different results about stem cell therapy and cancer immunotherapy and so forth. So, I mean, there's, there's tremendous potential for AI to be helpful to humans as well as for AI to make money for big and small companies all over. So, I mean, honestly, the human race can't even really stop nuclear proliferation very well. Right. And nuclear, nuclear bombs have very few applications beyond blowing people up, right? Whereas AI, AI can make money for so many companies and save so many lives and help so many people that the odds, yeah. of, the odds of holding back that development because of theoretic, theoretical potential threats, like it, it's just, yeah. it, 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 it's not going to happen unless you have like a North Korea style dictatorship or something, which fortunately no. is not the way the world is going. 
your your latest book, The Fourth Age, um, it's it's done very well. It's currently uh, um, doing very well in robotics, artificial intelligence on Amazon. Has some uh, great reviews, um, it, it, but. In respect to this, we, we often talk about, in terms of innovation, we talk, uh, you, know, you hear, hear bandied around uh, terms like the fourth industrial revolution and so forth, but you, you define the ages of humanity shaped by technology a little differently. Um, you, you talk about four times in history where technology has reshaped humanity. Um, so the, what are the first three of those? The first was when we got language 100,000 years ago, and that's our singular ability as a species. And then 10,000 years ago, we got agriculture. And the reason that was such a big deal is that gave us the city, and the city gave us a division of labor, and that created prosperity. And then the third one was actually a convergence of two technologies, writing and the wheel, which coincidentally happened at the same time, but together were the necessary components of nation states. So immediately after those two technologies came on the scene, you had all over the world um, different, um, you had different, you know, in Mesoamerica, Mesopotamia, the, the Po, Indus, you had these great civilizations emerge because you could promulgate laws and you could collect taxes and all the rest. Right. So the uh, Sumerians and, and so forth, right, with the uh... – that was the Hammurabi uh, text and so forth, right? Yeah. So, exactly. so, um, so, tell me then about the fourth age. Obviously, artificial intelligence. Um, you you call that conscious computers? Um, well, you know, you, you, obviously, as a, as a branch of AI. Obviously, we've got machine learning and and so forth now, which doesn't necessarily have consciousness, but. How do you do you think this is going to change the world on a global basis? And at, at a time when we've got pushback against globalization and all of these sorts of things, it would seem like the potential for AI, based on what we've seen the internet already do, that the potential is um, to really change the way humanity connects on a global basis. I got into this... Because I was very confused why the narratives around AI varied so much. Why does Elon Musk is afraid of it? And Stephen Hawking said it could be our last invention. And Bill Gates said he was worried about it. And then you would hear these other people like Zuckerberg and actually a lot of practitioners who said that that was all kind of ridiculous. And I really wanted to write a book that was why do they disagree? Like what do they know or believe that makes them different from each other. So I actually wrote a book that doesn't actually tell you what I think. I mean, I don't hide it, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not that important. What I try to do is take apart, you know, this narrative about automation. Either it's going to take all the jobs or it's gonna, we're going to have this huge shortage of humans. And I really wanted to understand why there was so, so many competing narratives that were so radically different, all by presumably, you know, intelligent, informed people. And what I came to understand is that it isn't that those people know different things, it's that they believe different things about the nature of right. humanity and, and so forth. And so I, I, I wrote a book that explores kind of all the possibilities that could happen. And the first question I ask the reader is, what are you? And and the choices I give you are, are, are you a machine? Are you completely mechanistic? Or are you an animal, which is kind of a machine that has life or something? Or are you a human, which is somehow an animal with something else? And so um, 
depending on your answer to that first question, that explains 80% of the differences in people's views on these questions. So I really wrote a philosophy book disguised as a technology book. Are now, you a philosopher? Is that how Well, you, I think it? you can't deal with technologies like this that are like, can a machine think? Like, think about that question. Can a machine think? I mean, we don't really have an answer to that, mainly because we don't have a language uh, around We've never had to worry about anything thinking other than an animal. So can a machine think? Can a machine understand anything? Can a machine feel anything or can it only sense things? And that's where consciousness comes in. And again, I never – consciousness is, is, you know, you experience the world. You feel temperature whereas a computer measures temperature, but you feel warmth. So could a computer ever become conscious? Well, that's both a philosophical question as well as a technical question. And so I kind of go through eight different theories on where consciousness comes from. In a few of them, machines could. In a few of them, machines couldn't. And again, uh, I try to set it up for the reader where I ask them some questions uh, that allow them to kind of take their own beliefs through it. I didn't want to just be another guy with an opinion telling right. people they should think like I think. I wanted to to really kind of explore the range of the debate, un- understand all the assumptions behind it, and then discuss the implications. That being said, kind of no matter what happens, artificial intelligence is, I think, going to put us into this thing as big as speech or language. And, and one of the The most telling clues about that is that if 25 years ago the Mosaic browser came out and if somebody had said, hey, in 25 years, there are going to be billions of people on this thing, what do you think is going to happen? You know, you would have said, well, the yellow pages are going to have problems. You would have said (laughs) stockbrokers and travel agents. And and you would have been right. But what you would never have gotten was Google, eBay, Etsy, Amazon, Airbnb, all of that, $25 trillion in wealth. Drones delivering packages. Everything. And it's all simply one, one technology, which is make computers talk to each other. That's all the internet is. It's just allowing computers to talk to each other. So if you let them talk to each other and you get a million new companies and 25 trillion in wealth, what's going to happen if they all start thinking? What if they effectively make everybody on the planet smarter? What if tomorrow we woke up and everybody was essentially 20 IQ points smarter because you you had these digital assistants? Mm. Uh, that's profound. That's, you know, that's game changing. There is another element of this, which is a systemic thing, um, but which your which your data flies in the face of, Byron. But if you look at if you look at the the macro changes at an industry level, industrial revolution comes along. People move out of agriculture and farming. They move into factories. Right in the 60s and 70s, with the drive of automation of factories, people move out of factory jobs into white collar and blue collar service industry, and now AI is going to attack human process in service industry. What sector do they move into? Well, that's akin, in my way of seeing things, like asking, okay, the internet 25 years ago is going to get rid of the stockbrokers and the yellow page people and the travel agents. What are they going to do? And, and the thing is, is we, we can't see it. We would have never said, oh, they're going to sell crafts on Etsy or they're going to uh, – I mean – the millions and millions of jobs that just you could not have ever even imagined that came out of just connecting computers together. In a way, AI doesn't replace people in the way people think it does. Anybody with a tool that has AI in it 
becomes effectively a person as smart as that tool. If they can use that tool, their productivity just went up. They don't have to understand how the tool works. They don't have to code it. But if you can give them a tool that has smarts in it, uh, then all of a sudden that is empowering people. That doesn't leave people behind. You, you mentioned that job test, you know, will a robot take your job? And it asks 10 questions, you know, does what your did, job... What did you get on the test? I find precious few jobs that it that technology can completely replace. Very right. few. If it requires mobility, like my plumber, a robot's not going to be able to do it. If it requires empathy, a robot's not going to be able to... I mean, it's very hard to come up not with... In, not in the current state, yeah. Right. But in 20 right. years? Well, that is an interesting question. So there's, there's two distinctly different kinds of AI. There's what we know how to do now, which is teach a machine to do one thing, play chess, spot spam email. And then there's this thing that people imagine may be Task, possible. Task-based machine intelligence. Correct. Machine learning, yep. People, some people believe we're going to create a general intelligence, and AI is smart and versatile as a human being. Now, when you hear people say you should be afraid of it, that's what they're talking about. And it's a technology that we don't know how to build. I think that's very clear. Estimates on when we'll build it range between five and 500 years, which is kind of telling as well. <laughs> uh, and, and several people, many people believe that it is impossible. If you don't believe you're a machine, that's the, that's the whole rationale. You are a machine. Your brain is a machine. Everything about you're you is a biological is, machine. Okay. Therefore, we can build one someday. That's the beginning and the end of the logic. If you believe that, then yeah, we're probably going to build one. It always seems to be 25 years out, though, and it seems to have been 25 <laughs> years out for a long time. It's a, it's a sufficiently far out distance for a, a futurist to to know, have nobody remember that they said that. Yeah, well, you, you know the definition of a futurist, don't you, Byron? I don't know that one. It, it's it's means never being wrong today. <laughs> That's uh, a, good one. Yeah. Uh, Spiros, you had a question or statement? Do you believe, I wanted to ask, do you believe that we will have a period, a painful period of this transition from losing jobs to finding new jobs? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I think every advance in these technologies just creates opportunity. When you think about it, all technology does is magnifies human ability. Uh, you you know, you can move more bricks with a forklift than on your back. Every piece of technology you build that can magnify human productivity will increase wages and will create jobs. The, the, the question – so and, – and I think the truck driver one, that's this kind of one that people cite, is kind of the least concerning of everything. Uh, in fact – Truck drivers are facing kind of a demographic disaster. They're aging rapidly, and because everybody's like there's no future in it, very few people are going into it. Uh, and so we're actually going to have this great shortage of truck drivers as far as the eye can see. Even when right now, you yeah. have self-driving trucks, you still have to have people involved in all of that. It's, it, there's, 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 a, there's a fallacy called the lump of labor fallacy, that there's a finite number of jobs. And if a bunch vanish, then you have unemployment. Well, this isn't true. There's an, jobs can be made up out of thin air. The minute you take something, add technology to it, and make something worth more, that's a job. And however much value you added in an hour, that's a wage. And so the reason unemployment never went between, out of 5 to 10% is not because, oh, we didn't make you know big inventions in the past. I mean, 
the assembly line was artificial intelligence, a frightening kind of artificial intelligence, right? It could take an unskilled worker and they could make a better product cheaper. That's AI. And and that didn't put that didn't cause systemic unemployment. So no. In I fact, don't it, it's argued that it created the middle class in the United States, the particularly the you know, the Model T Ford and so forth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're we're facing something bigger than that because we're facing we're empowering machines see all ai is this is a really simple idea take a bunch of data about the past study it look for patterns make projections about the future that's all it is it's nothing mysterious or anything like that it turns out though computers are so good at doing it they that that they give people essentially great new abilities that they there's a purity control. there's a purity of it right so hey listen we've got about four minutes to close so i just want to uh, um uh, you know uh, sort of wrap wrap this up and i want to say a few words about the book in closing but um you, you know the the overall assessment from you know those that have reviewed the book and and the feedback on the book and my view of it as well is that you're quite optimistic about the future so what do you think in you know 30 seconds 60 seconds what what are the most um optimistic things that we have to look forward to as a result of artificial intelligence technology continues to get better and better and and something that i think comes out of that is that we will eventually solve all technical problems purely technical problems now there are a lot of problems that aren't purely technical i mean there are bad people right but there are things that there's no reason they exist we just haven't figured out how to stop them. So I believe you'll see the end of disease. Like diseases, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Poverty, yeah. I believe, is a technical problem. You don't have to have poor countries. Um, hunger is a technical problem. There's there's no reason you have to have hungry, hungry people in the world and, and all of the rest. And I think that we're, I think that we've had 10,000 years of progress and to, to think somehow, now that we get these great new abilities, it's gonna vanish is, is just wrong. No, I, I don't think uh, we're going to go backwards. But um, there's another element to this. You know, you talk about the 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 fourth the fourth age, and but in the in the in the two first ages, people didn't work like we work. They didn't do a 40-hour or, if you're Elon Musk, 120-hour working week. Most people spent most of their time just looking for food. So work is a fairly relative, uh, a f relatively new uh, phenomenon. But So maybe AI will enable us not to have to work in the same way that we do. That would be well, positive. Keynes, 100 years ago, wrote an essay that said, if economic growth continues, and it did, people in the future will only have to work 15 hours. And if you do the math... Uh, that's kind of true. If you want to live like people lived in 1930, no air conditioning, 600 square feet, no medical insurance, no vacation, and all of that, you, you could probably work do 15 it. hours, yeah. Exactly. But what happened? But if you want an iPhone every year. Exactly. <laughs> that's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five star rating on your favorite podcast platform, or share it with a friend, or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.